Okay, we're going to be in Second uh, Samuel, uh, chapter nine, verses one through thirteen. How many of you, raise your hand, know the story of Mephibosheth? Well, we got a couple. I'm shocked. I didn't. I didn't think anybody would have heard that strange name. Uh, not one of the names in the top of your list when you have a kid and you're trying to figure out what to name the child. Uh, Mephibosheth is not up there. Uh, but this is a really, really powerful story. It's a really powerful story that teaches us about the grace of God and how someone who, by any standard, would not uh, or should not receive anybody's grace, and in this situation, a king's grace and a king's mercy still receives it. And what I've been trying really to hammer home through all of these stories that we've looked at all throughout the year is primarily what Jesus told us is that everything in the Bible points to him, including the stuff in the Old Testament. And this is one of those stories where you have this largely unknown character. Most people in church do not know who Mephibosheth is, uh, much less what his story is. And you got these kind of stories in here just kind of crunched in between some major ones. And a lot of times they're preached as if, okay, let's get some life morals out of this. Let's see how we can be better people out of the story that we read here. And those are okay, but the main thrust of every passage of Scripture and every story and every character is to point us to Jesus. And the main idea is how is Jesus shown here? How is his gospel shown here? And how is Jesus better than this character that you're reading about? Because the character you're reading about is a human being. And they're going to be flawed. Just like even we're going to read about today, King David. A man after God's own heart. Means he was a man who lived seeking the will of God. And yet if you know anything about David's story, he was a terribly flawed human being with many mistakes. He made mistakes that I bet a lot of us have not made. And yet, their stories are here for a, big per, a bigger reason. Not just to learn from their mistakes and learn from their lives, but to teach us something about Jesus. And this is one of those stories to really show us what the gospel is all about. The first thing I want to do is what is grace? And I came across uh, just a simple definition. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, if you know him, know that name. He defined grace as the unmerited favor of God. So grace, we talk about the grace of God. Grace, what we just sang about, is being given something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not being given what you do deserve. Grace is being given, what you, uh, is being given something that you don't. So it's a gift. That's the gospel. Jesus giving of himself is something that God freely gave that we didn't deserve to have given to us. And by repentance and faith, you, you, you get that. You get salvation. So we're going to look at this story. 2 Samuel 9, 1 through 13. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And so when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so the king said to him, Where is, where, where is he? 
And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. And King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David. He fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake. And will restore you uh, to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? The king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. And now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So we're going to discuss some of this stuff so you understand what's going on here and why this is significant. Why is it such a big deal, and why did God find it fit to put in His Word this story of this cripple who King David decides to show kindness to, bring him into his house, and essentially make him a part of his family? Why is that a big deal? So that's what we're going to hope to answer. Now you see some key people. You see David mentioned here. You see Saul mentioned here, Jonathan, and then Mephibosheth. What all is going on? So if you know anything about the dynamics, you know Saul and David, uh, it's a very hairy situation. All the stuff that's taken place, Saul, the people of God, wanted God to no longer be their king. They didn't want to... They didn't want to be led by prophets. They didn't want to be led by the Word of God. They wanted a king like everybody else did. We want to be like the other nations who've got a human being in front of them. And so God's first king he gave to them was King Saul. And if you remember at the very beginning, Saul was this humble guy. Uh, he, he, was, he was taller, more handsome than everybody else, but he kind of stayed back in the background and uh, he didn't really want any attention drawn to himself. He seemed to be a humble guy, who honored God. And the people decide to choose him as their first king uh, simply because of the way he looked. And we're in election season. A lot of times that's how people vote, isn't it? It's just how someone looks and sounds, not necessarily what they know and how they're going to lead. And so they're already starting off on a bad foot. God has already warned them, if you go with this route, if you go with a human king, He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to build his army. He's going to use you to build up his kingdom. And anyway, they choose to go with it. And so Saul is the first king. He starts off good. But then over time, as you know from human nature, the more power he got, the more influence he got, the more victory God gave him, the more arrogant he got. And he got to the point where he kind of assumed he could do some of the things the priest could even do. And so he offers these sacrifices and he starts doing things that God said don't do. And eventually God said, all right, 
judgment has come upon you. The kingdom has been taken from you. And I have chosen David to now be the new king. Well, Saul, eaten up with arrogance, pride, this is mine and you're not going to take it from me. He decides he wants David dead. And you read in the Old Testament, there are multiple times he tries to kill David and he fails. He's got, he's got this derangement. It's like he's, he's gone mental. He's got mental issues at this point. And, and he, wants, he wants David dead. He never can kill him. And David, on the flip side, has opportunity to kill him. But David says, no, he's still God's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. I'm going to show him grace and mercy. I'm not going to do it. And so this goes on. And eventually, David becomes the installed king. Over time, as things start transferring more over to David's side, uh, David has been growing in this brotherly, best friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, can you just imagine that? Your best friend, you guys are like blood brothers. You've gotten that close. Your best friend's dad wants to murder you and has tried. That could be some tension there. So anyway, as the story goes, they're, they're good friends. They're great friends. That relationship stays the way it is. Uh, but David flees and he starts building up his own kind of, kind of army and his own following. Saul and Jonathan go into battle one day against the Philistines. They're both killed. And all that's left is Saul and Jonathan's estate and this son Mephibosheth. But David made a promise to Jonathan that he would look after him, that he, they had this pact with each other, that they would uh, continue this relationship, and uh, he would look after his family, all that sort of thing. And so now we're at the point where they're both gone, and in those days, it's even kind of similar to what we see today in our own government, but not quite extreme. In those days, when you took over as king, or you were leader, what most people did, and you can find it in the Old Testament, whatever of any family or any of the regime that was before me is left, I'm going to slaughter them. It's my throne now, so I'm going to go kill all of them so I don't have any more problem with them. And that's what they did. Anybody that was left, even if you were some great-grandchild and you had nothing, I had no connection to King Saul, they could come after you and kill you just to be sure that you're out of the way, that there's no uprising, no rebellion. He has every right to go and kill Mephibosheth. You also read about Mephibosheth, he tells us twice, he's lame in both his feet. At some point when, when they found out that Saul and Jonathan had died, uh, the lady taking care of him got scared. When the king dies and your leaders die, uh-oh, that army's coming for us. So she gets scared. She picks up little Mephibosheth in her arms and she takes off running. She trips and falls and lands on the child and ends up, what many believe, paralyzing him from the waist down. In that culture, you're pretty much, like he describes himself, a dead dog to people. You're worthless. There, there's nothing you can be used for. So the whole picture, we're going to get to the notes here, but the whole picture of the gospel is this. This unredeemable, worthless person who has nothing to offer anyone, especially the king, who deserves to be killed, or should be, could be killed, ends up being shown grace and mercy by the king who holds his life in his very hand. And not only does he show him grace and pardon, he takes it to the extreme that nobody would ever do. 
I bring one of the children of my sworn enemy who tried to kill me into my own home, let him eat at my table and make him a part of my family. And you see the gospel in the story? All right, y'all ready to go now? The sermon's over? Yes. Early lunch. But, but that's it. But I want to I show you the, the elements here. So you see verse 1 and verse 3. There's this thing that David wants to do. And this is, this is what God does in the gospel. He shows them his said. What does he want to do? I want to show someone from Jonathan's house the, 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 the kindness of God. This is God's goodness. This is God's faithfulness. I want to show not my goodness. I don't want to show how good of a man I am. I don't want to show how loving I am. I want to show someone from my best friend's house, no matter who it is, I want to show that person how kind and good God is. Because, again, no human being would have done this at that time. I'm not going to take someone from my enemy into my house and feed them and make them a part of my own. They would kill him. I want to show someone the kindness of God. That is what God did when He came here and died for us on the cross. He's going to show you His kindness, His faithfulness. I'm not just going to leave you there in your, in your state of being my enemy and your worthlessness and your sin. I'm not going to leave you there like that. I'm going to come after you and I'm going to rescue you and offer you a chance to be a part of my family. Come to my table. We should have sang that song today, Jennifer. I'm sure you were thinking about it. Why didn't he pick that song? So, what do we have here? Number one, how does the story of Mephibosheth point us to the gospel? What did Jesus mean in Luke chapter 24, I believe, when he said, all the scriptures point to me? What do you mean when he's talking about this story? Number one, by ancestry, Mephibosheth was an enemy of the king. That's the first element. By ancestry, he was automatically an enemy of the king. Mephibosheth, so Saul is his grandfather. The grandfather Saul tried to kill David. Then you have Jonathan, who's the best friend, never tried to kill David. And there's Mephibosheth, the grandson. Does Mephibosheth have anything to do with Saul trying to kill David? None whatsoever. Yet, by being connected to Saul, by ancestry, by bloodline, he's already guilty. In that culture, he could be killed just because he's part of that family. He could rebel. Verse 3, And the king said, Is there still not still someone of the house of Saul? Notice he doesn't say Jonathan of the house of Saul. Saul's the head there, to whom I may, may show the kindness of God. And again, even though Saul tried multiple times to kill David, He's not taking it out on the, on the grandchild. So here's this connection to the gospel, if you're taking notes. By our connection through the sin nature with Adam, our first ancestor, we are enemies of God. You see the connection there? Mephibosheth had done nothing personally against David. It was just he was connected to Saul. Since he was connected to Saul, he was an enemy, unless that changed. And it can only be changed by the grace and mercy of the King David. By virtue of us being born as human beings, Adam takes head over all mankind. So every human being that's ever born, male or female, 
are born as guilty sinners. And Romans 5.12 actually puts it this way, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that's talking about Adam, and death through sin, that's why we all die, by the way, is because it was all Adam's fault, and then we followed him. And thus, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we are all held guilty under Adam. We're all born guilty, and then we all do the same stuff that Adam did. So by ancestry, we are all enemies of God. By ancestry, Mephibosheth was an enemy of David. You see that? There's more to the story than just a random act of kindness by David. So we're all born with this sin nature. It's passed on to us. We see it in Genesis. And, and, and sin, since we're all born in it, sin is anti-God. So we're born anti-God. We're born rebels. We're born wanting to go against the kingdom of God. But then point number two comes along in verse 7. By relationship, Mephibosheth was given pardon and fellowship with the king. So by this new relationship, even though he's an enemy, and even though he's connected to Saul, by this new relationship that King David begins, by the way, he's the one that kicks it off, not Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is then given pardon and fellowship with the king. Verse 7, So David said to him, Don't fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake. That's an interesting term there. And will restore you, to all, restore you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. There's one reason and one reason only that David gives as to why he's going to show this kindness to Mephibosheth. What was it? The son. I'm going to show you this kindness because of who your dad is. Your grandfather wanted me dead and he tried many times. He was my enemy. God took the, God took the kingdom from him and gave it to me. But your dad, his son, Jonathan, that was my best friend. Jonathan would do anything for me. I love Jonathan like a brother. And because of Jonathan, I'm willing to look past what Saul has done, and I'm going to offer you a chance to come to my table and be a part of my family just like your dad Jonathan was. Anybody see the gospel yet? It's all because of the son Mephibosheth was able to come in and be a part of that family. Did Mephibosheth do anything? No, he couldn't. You even see there before that, what does Mephibosheth do when King David shows up? He thinks David's come to kill him. The reaper has finally shown up. Judgment has finally come. He found me. And what does Mephibosheth do? He throws himself, he prostrates himself. I mean, he threw himself to the floor. On his face. Show me mercy. Have mercy on me, a dead dog. I am nothing. And in that culture, he literally was. He was paralyzed from the waist down. He could do nothing. Do you see also here the stance that every human being should take when faced with the gospel? It is a stance of humility. If I'm really truly seeking out Jesus and I want to be saved, He calls all of us to humble ourselves and repent. 
That is what Mephibosheth is doing. I'm nothing. I can't save myself. I don't deserve this kind of grace and mercy you're showing me. I throw myself at your mercy. Please show me grace and mercy, King. That's how someone's truly converted of heart. I recognize who I am in God's eyes. I throw myself at the mercy of Him and trust in the Son. It's so clear. But how many times do we read these stories and we kind of go through them and don't ever think gospel and how can I see it here? This is a, this is a big one. In, this, in verse 7, this is why the song, I should have picked it and I didn't come to the table. And not only he says there, I'm going to restore all the land that was part of your family, but you're going to eat bread at my table continually. In Eastern culture... It's not, it's not like we take it. You know, you have somebody come over to your house and, you know, they eat dinner with you or whatever, or you go out to a restaurant. You know, you may see somebody doing that, but you don't automatically assume, oh, they must be family or best friends. You know, you just may notice that they're out with somebody. In the East, if you ever did this, if you ever ate with somebody, whether you had just met them for the first time or known them your whole life, if you have someone into your home and you break bread with them, you are showing that you share and you, you believe in and you follow and you, you, everything that they do, you're connected to now. See, it's a lot deeper than kind of how we view eating out with somebody. This is like you're saying, we're best friends, we're family because we're eating together. We're, we're fellowshipping. The same reason, and this attitude carried all the way throughout to the New Testament, it's the same reason the Pharisees and the Jews got so ticked off when Jesus went in and ate with Matthew the tax collector. <gasps> He's eating with the tax collector. That means, he, that means Jesus approves of stealing and lying and being deceitful. What about when they lost it when he's, when he's eating with the sinners, when He's eating with the prostitutes? That means Jesus approves of fornication and adultery. This guy's anti-God. He's anti-law. He, he's a sinner. So in the East, is a big deal. Why is that a big deal to us as New Testament Christians in 2020? Because this, this image, he brought Mephibosheth in, who was a dead dog, worthless enemy, into his home. That's showing fellowship. You are a part of my family now. Come in and eat at my table. And you see, he says continually, this is going to take place until I'm dead and gone. So let's tie this into a pretty bow. Final point. So this, this, this connection here connects us straight to the gospel. By our connection through faith in the Son, Jesus, through our, by our connection through faith in the Son, Jesus, we are pardoned of our sin and we are brought to the king's table in fellowship. That's what this story is here to teach us. The grace and mercy of God and how that is given to us through the faithful son. You all see that? We're going to do the Lord's Supper here in a second. That's one reason why the service was a little bit shorter than usual. I don't think anybody will complain about that. But we're going to observe the Lord's Supper in a second. And you know, we're told it's a memorial. It's a remembrance of what Jesus did. You know, the, the bread and the juice, His body and His blood. 
not literally, but symbolically. We remember what that means to us. But it also, when he instituted the supper that night with the disciples, he said, I'm going to observe this meal with you this time, and then I won't do it again until the final day when we're all together in the kingdom of God. And we will fellowship once again, and we will partake of this meal one more time, and we'll do it together. What we do here in a second as Christians, we don't just remember this is the blood and the body that was given for me on the cross. This is also our time to gather around the table of God. Holy Spirit, here He's here with us. And we observe this supper together in fellowship with our King. And then this reminds us, one day it's not going to just be a bunch of believers sitting in a church eating a wafer and drinking some juice. But we're actually going to be at the table with King Jesus with Him. This is to help us to remember that's coming. This is a, this is a very hope-filled thing we get to do. And like in this story, because of the Son, Mephibosheth was able to come in. Us today... We're dead dogs connected to Adam because of our sin, enemies of God because of that sin. But if we turn to the Son, we turn to Him and say, You are my King, You are my Lord, I'm not living for myself anymore. Forgive me of my sin, I follow You as my Lord and Savior. He gives you access to God and a place at the table. And we don't deserve it. Final observation, and then I'm going to close. See in verse 4. So Mephibosheth has the right response. He, he's humble and he responds in, in trusting King David. He's not here to kill me. He actually is here to save me. So he responds the correct way. And in verse 4, the king said to him, Where is he? And, and Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel and Lodebar. Why do I point that out? Sometimes you read this and you think, well, he's paralyzed, he's lame in both feet, he's a dead dog, he calls himself. He must just be in a poor situation. This wasn't a whole lot to, to leave behind to go sit with a king. You read in other places at a different time when King David was with his army and they were low on supplies. And keep in mind, this is a big army. A few guys show up to come supply the army with food and other things. One of those guys, guess who it was? It was Makir. So he's obviously a guy who's got some kind of wealth to be able to supply an entire army with stuff. So what I want to point out here is this. This is one of the biggest hang-ups with people when it comes to, do I want to follow Jesus and give Him my life or not? Am I willing to turn away from it all to follow this Jesus? Mephibosheth isn't leaving an impoverished, difficult, tough life of suffering. He's leaving a pretty cushy position. He's set up. Makir's got money. He's got an easy life. But he notices what's going on here. I get a place at the king's table. And he, he pounces on it. Sometimes that's too much for people to turn down. This world is too much for people to turn down. I hope there's no one in here that you're more concerned with the things of this world than what is to come. 
Because look, there's one thing that we all share in here is we all age. We all know, no matter how young we are, if we're Michaela and Daisy, all the way to the oldest member in here, this is very limited. Why do we want to live for this? You may have 70, 80, if you're lucky, 90 or 100 years. And you have that in one hand versus an eternity. But so many people say, ah, I can see this. I'm going with this. And that's what's at stake here. Which one do you choose? Romans 5, 8-11 through 11 is what I'm going to close with. God demonstrates His own love toward us. Remember us, the dead dogs. And that while we were still sinners, not that we were saved and then He loved us, it's while you were still a sinner, still rejecting Him. And us in here, before we were even born to make a decision, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, He's talking about believers now, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies of God, which is what we all were when we were born sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So thank goodness Jesus rose from the grave because that means we will rise. If He stayed dead, we would stay dead. But He rose, believers will rise. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you see he's talking about it in past tense? You've received it. You're not waiting or hoping that one day you did good enough as a Christian and then maybe he'll give you a spot at the table. You've got a spot at the table. Already. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's how I'm going to close. Mephibosheth has his own story. And it happens to be ours too. All of us are born on the side of the enemy of God. We're all born under Adam. We're all sinners. But Jesus comes. He's the son like Jonathan. He dies in our place and He offers us grace and mercy if we will receive it. And ask Him to be our Lord and Savior. And by doing that, we transfer over to the other family. But the question is, have you done that?